almost 25 years ago, D.A. Carson, the accomplished New Testament scholar, wrote a little book called Basics for Believers. It's a great book. It walks through the book of Philippians and kind of guides Christians on how to, how to live. I recommend the book, if only for the foreword I'm about to read to you. Now, he wrote this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but he wrote this to get our attention. It got mine this week. Carson says, I would like to buy $3 worth of the gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself don't want to, to love those from different races, especially if they smell. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of the gospel, please. Now, none of us would be so coarse as to put it that way, but I would be lying if I said that those kinds of thoughts never enter into my mind. There's so often... I want a comfortable Jesus. I want, to I want to follow a Jesus who is comforting and not challenging. I want to follow a Jesus who's not just out for my good, but does what I think is good too. I want to follow a Jesus who does radical things for me, but doesn't ask radical things of me. And I don't think I'm alone. We can all want a comfortable Jesus. We can all want a Jesus that is always only comforting or inspiring. But this Jesus we've met throughout this book in Mark is anything but comfortable. And our job as we look at Jesus and learn from Jesus is to watch him. You see, we can't just observe or watch or marvel or learn from him. He's unique. He's a man we must respond to. Everyone has to respond to this Jesus. The story of his life, this man must be responded to. So Mark told us in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Each time we come to Mark, we have another opportunity to respond. Christians can respond by saying, yeah, I remember Jesus is worth following, and I'm going to continue to put one foot in front of the other. I'm going to continue to follow him no matter how hard it is. And those of you here who aren't Christians, you can make the choice to say, I'm going to begin to follow him. We all need to respond to Jesus. How will you respond to him? May we be a people who don't hold anything back. All right, we're going to go again to the temple and take our place beside Jesus. He's going to direct our gaze this morning to see something we never would have noticed, even if we were there. Mark will describe it for us, and let's see as we read Mark chapter 12, verse 41 through 44. You can follow along with me in your Bible. And he, that's Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money 
into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would get our attention this morning. Everyone in this room needs our attention to be redirected to you in different ways. Some of us are bored. Some of us are nervous. Some of us are worried. Some of us are not knowing what to think. But Lord, I pray that you would grab our attention. I pray that through the preaching of your word this morning, each of us would have our gaze fixed on you. I pray that we would be redirected in our ambitions and our thoughts and our hopes and our dreams so that they would come in line and in contact with you. Lord, that's something that I could pray about, but I could never accomplish on my own, even in my own life. Lord, I pray by your Spirit you would be active amongst your people here this morning. You promise great blessing to be associated with the preaching of your word, and I pray for great blessing here this morning. In your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Two simple points this morning. First, what Jesus saw. Second, what Jesus said. What Jesus saw and what Jesus said. First, what Jesus saw that no one else did. No one else noticed what Jesus noticed. Now, remember where we are. It's Tuesday, the last week of Jesus' life. It's the end of an exhausting day where Jesus had a whole day of verbal sparring with the Jewish religious elite. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes, they all came to take their licks at Jesus. Jesus rebuffed each and every one of them, and I'm sure he's tired. So he sits down. Now he chooses a curious seat. He chooses a seat across from the treasury. Jesus is people watching. He's doing. Now we need to understand what's happening here. Now, If we were there with Jesus, we would see a a lobby of people, a, a, a massive building full of people, shoulder to shoulder, with no place to walk. This is Passover time, which means that 200,000 Jewish pilgrims were coming to Jerusalem for Passover. And they were all there. Maybe not all crammed into the building at the same time, but they were all in the city, and the city was swelling. The normal population of Jerusalem is something like 50,000 people. Imagine that city being descended on by 200,000 people. And everybody's coming, and they're going to come, and they're going to give their offerings. All of the pilgrims making the trip would come to the temple, not only to purchase a sacrifice, but also to give money. Some are paying temple taxes. Some are giving free will offerings. There are 13 different receptacles throughout the temple that, mark, that, that, that are put there so people could put their money in. Now, there is big money flowing here. No one's throwing around, no one's throwing around Franklins or, or Jacksons because there's no, no such thing as paper money. We've got coin flowing. We have gold and silver coin. 
And the way that they would do this is they would put kind of an inverted cone over the, the box. And so to throw in your money, it would make all kinds of noise. So you could tell how much somebody gave by the noise. And so if we were standing in there, not only would there be the reverberation of all the talking and yelling and speaking in that, in that temple, but at the same time, there would be coins echoing throughout. And so as a rich person would come in, they would throw the coins in this inverted cone. It would bounce around and rumble and boom, 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 boom. And people would look over there and say, oh my gosh, look at that. And then someone else in another corner would come and boom, and boom, boom, boom. All, you've got big money flowing through the temple as Jesus sits down. And people look to make the loudest noise. Coins are clanging. And here's what Mark reports to us. This is what Jesus, this is what Jesus sees in verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. That's what we just talked about. Many rich people put in large sums. Now, that's what we just described. That's what we just... Now we can understand what, what, what Mark's talking about. But Jesus then notices something that no one else sees. No one except Jesus notices this poor widow. Look at verse 42. If we were there, we wouldn't have noticed her either. That's, Mark is saying, okay, now we're going to direct our gaze on to this poor, anonymous, nameless widow. Verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Now, this nameless widow drops two coins into the offering box that didn't make a sound. They were thin. In fact, the word, means, the word is lepta. She put in two lepta, which means thin, and they're just they're, they're copper. We don't know if she had mouths to feed at home besides her own. We don't know if she had parents to take care, for, care of, uncles, aunts, cousins. We don't know if she had children at home, but we do know she was a widow, and she would have had a hard time scratching out a living. One lepta could feed her for a day, and she gave two. In other words, she gave all she had. Jesus is going to tell us that in a minute. Now, these lepta are the smallest coins in circulation at the time. There is literally, she would have literally given, unless someone gave one lepta, the smallest offering in the temple that day. And no one would have noticed. It wouldn't be a stretch to say that this was the most insignificant gift that day. It might not have even been noticed by the temple's accountants. You know what it's like when you're walking down the road and you see a penny and you think, my back's too old to reach over and get that. I'm just going to leave it. And then you get older and you see a nickel, same thing. Temple's accountants might not. They, they might have said, this is hardly even worth counting. But what the accountants missed, our Savior didn't. He sees something no one else did. He also says something no one else would. We've seen what Jesus saw. Now we, see, we hear what Jesus said. And he said something no one else would. Now this quiet act of devotion was completely unnoticed by all the important and wealthy people of the day. Everyone, everyone missed her except the most important person in the universe. <clears throat> no act of devotion, no matter how small, is missed by Jesus. Not with this widow, not with you, not with me. 
The disciples didn't see what she did, but Jesus called their attention to her. And he tells them why. So here's his explanation. Look at verse 43. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. This poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Jesus says this poor widow who gave two of the smallest coins in circulation at the time gave something more than everybody else who threw in large amounts of money. He is measuring something besides money. He's not saying she put in, it's not as if those two coins magically turned into bitcoins and went in there and all of a sudden they're worth all kinds of money. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he's measuring something different here. He's got something else in mind and he says this woman gave more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Not just more than the others, but more than all the others combined. Now, everything about this woman shouted less. 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 Her appearance, less than the others. She was poor. Her offering, less. She barely had anything to give. Her social standing, less. But Jesus says, more. There's got to be, then, a different economy and measuring system here. The economy of heaven works differently than that of earth. He values things we might not normally see. Here's how a couple lepta are more valuable than all the flowing gold and silver. Verse 44. Now he speaks of the rich people first. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty. She has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Edwards, James Edwards says it well when he says, in the temple, others gave what they could spare, but the poor widow spared nothing. She, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. Now, literally, the ESB does a wonderful job, by the way. I'm about to say a way that they could have translated this differently. They do a wonderful job translating it. It's an essentially literal translation. But as anyone who can speak more than one language, you know there are ways to communicate things in one language that don't always translate into the other. Here's the way that this ought to have been rendered. She, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had her whole life. That's what Mark writes. That's what Jesus says. She, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had her whole life. Now, she doesn't, Jesus is not meaning that she died when she gave her meager gift. He's meaning she held nothing back. She gave all she had. She gave her whole life. The reason she gave more than all the rest is because she did not hold back. They gave what they could spare. She gave all she had. It was an expression of her devotion to God. This poor widow was devoted to God. In giving those two little thin coins, she's saying with her actions, all I have is yours. All I am is yours. My future is in your hands. I am not in control anymore. Now, at this point, if you've been around church for any length of time, you might expect this term, sermon to take a turn and we start talking about money. But we're not. 
because there's more going on here than just money and generosity. You see, this widow gave her whole life. She held nothing back. She expressed complete devotion to God by giving him all she had. She gave her whole life. This passage is not so much about money as much as it is about us completely devoting ourselves to God. This woman was completely devoted to God and held nothing back. But as valiant as this widow's action was, now memorialized and canonized here in the Scriptures, as valiant as that action was, the point here is not go and be like the widow. We have to take another step. Our eyes must be fixed on the most generous person in this picture. The most generous person in this picture is not the poor widow. The most vital person in this story is Jesus. Our eyes aren't to linger only on the widow, but move to the Savior. The widow metaphorically put in her whole life. The Savior put in his whole life for keeps. She gave everything she had. He gave up everything he was, even his own life. She gave from her poverty. He impoverished himself for our good. She had two lepta and held nothing back. He held all things. He created all things, held all things together by the word of his power, had all things, inherited all things, and yet he held nothing back. The biggest giver in this chapter here is Jesus. Jesus is the most generous person in this story. No one understood it yet at this time. It's Tuesday. Jesus would be arrested on Thursday and die on Friday. In a mere 48 hours before this conversation, Jesus will be arrested, tried, beaten, crucified, and die. He gave his whole life. Like the widow, no one at the time of his death could perceive what was happening. Nobody understood rightly what the widow was doing, except Jesus. Similarly, as Jesus dies, no one really understood what was happening. It appeared to people that Jesus was caught in a maelstrom of chaotic events and evil people, and he was a victim of circumstance. But Jesus has been clear. He's been telling us over and over, and the last time he said what was going to happen was when he was with the twelve in Mark chapter 10, talking about his trip to Jerusalem, when he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. That's the Romans. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus doesn't merely endure this as a willing vict- as, a, as a victim. He gives himself. He generously gives everything he has. You see, our eyes are meant to be drawn. The widow's a good example. But our Savior generously gave all things for us. If we're Christians, what we need to see here is that our Savior gave his whole life. The one who had no beginning was born in a manger, lived a perfect life, died a death that slaves and outcasts died. Why? He came to, to give himself for us. Think of that generosity. That generosity that 
that is so profound. Jesus left heaven to come to earth. I can guarantee you that if we could go on a tour of heaven right now, none of us would want to come back. We would never want to come back. When we get to be with the Lord on the day that, our, that we die and we go from here to the Lord, we're going to be all the more amazed that Jesus left. But Jesus left. He left. Why? He left because he had a heart of generosity toward rebellious sinners, toward people who didn't deserve it, toward treasonous people, toward people who ignore him, to people who are indifferent to him. And he said, I will offer you my whole life. Jesus generously gave all of himself. And even as he gave all of himself, everyone ran from him. We'll read that the disciples, his best friends, run from him. His father rejects him. Why? Because he gave all of himself. He generously gave his whole life. And how are we to respond to generosity like that? You see, it's about more than just money. It's about our lives. We have been purchased. We are owned. Jesus gave himself for you, for me. In light of this grand generosity, we are to give ourselves to him without holding anything back. Give ourselves without holding anything back. You see, a lot of us, I'm in this category, we're apt to hold parts of ourselves back to protect ourselves. We can think, I can do this better than the Lord can Even we as Christians can do this. We hold back. We hold a little of ourselves back. We don't put all of ourselves out there because we might be hurt. We hold a little of ourselves back, and when we say, Jesus doesn't want me to obey that much, be that unbending. We hold a little of ourselves back. We hold hold a little of ourselves back when we say things like, Jesus can't mean that I should forgive those people who hurt me. We hold a little of ourselves back when... We say, Jesus can't really mean that I should be generous with my money. It's my money. I worked for it. We hold a little of ourselves back when we say or think, Jesus can't mean that I should overlook that many sins committed against me. We hold a little of ourselves back when we say, Jesus would never ask me to do something that hard. We hold a little of ourselves back when we think, Jesus would never ask me to suffer like that. We hold a little of ourselves back when we think Jesus would never ask me to really hold nothing back. That's unreasonable. And yet, he held nothing back for us. You see, when we hold ourselves back, we subtly say, you know what? Jesus, you're not really worth it. I can do this better. You've got a plan, but I've got a plan, and I'm going to follow mine. I see this in me. Give a hat tip to D.A. Carson. We might say it like this. The Jesus I want is easy to follow. Following my Jesus always makes me happy. And he never makes me feel uncomfortable. Following my Jesus does not mean that I have to hate covetousness, greed, lust, or self-centeredness. 
Following my Jesus does not mean that I have to love my enemies, esteem self-denial, contemplate how I am to, to give my life for the good of others. Following my Jesus makes me more popular, not less. He gives me the gift of happiness, not the gift of repentance. He calls me to transcendence, not transformation. Following my Jesus means he lives to help me be cherished on social media by nice, encouraging, applauding, affirming people who like me and would never, he would never ask me to look foolish or out of step. My Jesus is present enough to make my family secure, my children well-behaved, but he's not so present that I find my ambitions redirected or my standard of living greatly changed. The Jesus I want is easy to follow. That can be my attitude. And I don't think I'm alone. What if? What if each of us, what if each of us said, you know what? I'm going to give myself to him without reserve. Now that's going to look different. That's going to look different for everybody. The way I thought about it this week was, I can imagine that as the widow walked toward that offering box with all the possessions she, all the monetary possessions she had in the world and dropped it in, I can imagine that there was part of her that was afraid. I can imagine she was thinking, well, I have no idea how this is going to go. But I love God. And she walks away. What if, in an effort to hold nothing back, what if we did one thing this month? Here we are at the beginning of the month. It's June 2nd. What if we did one thing this month for Jesus that makes us afraid? Now, I'm not talking about selling all your possessions and going out to the far-flung countries of the world. I'm talking about in your normal, everyday life. Something in your daily life that if you did that this month, that one thing, it would make you afraid because what you would say, be saying with that action is, okay, I'm going to trust you now. If you don't come through, I'm going to look foolish. I'm going to look out of step. I'm not talking about a foolish stunt or irresponsible action. I mean something that takes you out of your comfort zone and causes you to trust the Lord in a way that you haven't in a while. Something hard, something out of the ordinary, something uncomfortable. Now, we're all different. Hard, out of the ordinary, and comfortable is going to look different for all of us. But what if we each interacted with God and said, what's one thing I can do in the month of June that would make me afraid? You know what it's like when you take a step and you're thinking, wow, I have no idea where this is going to go, and my heart starts to pump a little faster? What, what, what if we each put our faith in the Lord and said, I'm going to do one thing in the month of June that I would not normally do because I love God and trust Jesus? What if we did that? Not grand gestures, but daily decisions of extravagant devotion. You see, when you do something for Jesus that makes you just a little bit afraid, you put yourself in a position of need. And you put yourself at the mercy of Jesus. And you know what? Just as the eyes of Christ were on this woman. And he celebrated what she did. His eyes are on you. What if, in the month of June, you did one thing for Jesus that makes you a little bit afraid? 
What if, and look at that, that could look like a thousand different things. What if the thing that makes you afraid is really opening up to a Christian friend, being honest where you struggle and where you need help? What if you did that in a way to honor Jesus? What if you sacrifice sleep for prayer as a way to honor Jesus? What if you just put your phone away or fasted from your phone for two days, three days? Something that makes you nervous, afraid. What if you ask someone very different from you to coffee? What if you take a break from social media and disconnect yourself? Put yourself in that uncomfortable position of not knowing what's happening in the up to the minute. And you decide, I'm going to take that time and I'm going to pray more. What if you are trapped in the sin of anger? You don't know what to do. You're afraid. What if you took a step and said, I'm going to fight my anger with all the ferocity I have? What if you look to help people who were shut in or caregivers and give them the gift of uninterrupted conversation? What if you just started going to small group to get to know other imperfect, messy people just like you? What if what makes you afraid is talking to people about Jesus? Your neighbors, friends, your co-workers? And what if you do? What if you don't have any unchristian friends? You need to make them. And that makes you a little bit afraid. What if you're tied to money? What makes you afraid is, is giving. What if you gave generously to the mission of the gospel advancement at this church? If you're not a member of this church, at the, at the church you're a part of. What if you did that? What if maybe you feel insecure about your house or your apartment or wherever you live? What if you invited old, friend, old friends and new friends over for dinner, even if you just had mac and cheese and hot dogs, and your house isn't perfect? What if, what if you're afraid of making friends with unbelievers, so you decide, I'm going to do that? And as you make friends, you show them the difference Jesus has made for you. Now, to some of you, some of that stuff might not sound hard at all. Others of you have different ideas planted there by the Spirit. Now, you might think, that is so small. That is so insignificant. It's very, a very poor and paltry gift that I can give. Now remember, Jesus does not measure the amount of the gift, but he measures the sacrifice. You see, Jesus didn't say to the woman, you should have given more. She gave all she had. He doesn't, mark, she, he doesn't say, well, that's only two left, uh, that's, that's good. But he says, she put her faith and her trust wholly in him. It's not the amount, but it's the sacrifice. And his eyes are on you. His eyes are on you. His eyes are on you, and he's eager and ready to bless you. 
You see, you might think that Jesus looks at you and he's ready to punish, but that's not how he is. Look here. Here he is, seated across from the treasury, and he's saying, look at that woman. Look at what she did for me. Look at her. What an amazing act of devotion. The eyes of Jesus are on you. What if, in the month of June, you did something for him that makes you afraid? His eyes are on you. His gaze is upon you, and he will bless you. He's eager to celebrate those small and seemingly insignificant sparks of devotion. I can imagine him watching you, ready to call the angels to his side and say, Hey, look! Guys, look! She isn't preoccupied with Facebook, but she's having coffee with her unsaved neighbor. She's giving out of her poverty and holding nothing back. Or, whoa, whoa, whoa! Hey, look, he turned off the game to really serve his family. He's giving out of his poverty and holding nothing back. Jesus has given us so much. Jesus has given everything for us. Jesus has given given us the greatest gift. Now, our response then is to give ourselves without reserve back to him. One thing. What's one thing in the month of June you'll do to put yourself at the mercy of Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would just put those things on our hearts. Lord, we, we all want to make a difference in, in, your, in your kingdom. This woman... The difference she has made to generations of Christians is incalculable. She's a story where look, she's a, she, her act of devotion that no one noticed in the temple that day but Jesus is being talked about today, 2,000 years later. Lord, I pray that you would give us each in this room individually and corporately a desire to take a chance, to take a risk, and do something for you that kind of makes us afraid. Don't know what that is. I pray that you would help all of us just to interact with you and not sort of brush it off or say, well, that's not for me, that's for everyone else. Lord, I pray that you would put something on the hearts of everyone in this room. Pray that you would help us. Help us to put ourselves in a position like this woman did. She held nothing back. Gave herself completely to her Lord. Lord, I pray for those here who aren't following you. Lord, I pray that they would give themselves completely to you. So they might know what it is to follow you. And look to you. They might be saved by you. You died so that they might live. I pray that that, they would understand that. And I pray for those of us here who are believers and are following you. I pray that we would shake out of the comfort zone that we construct for ourselves.
take a chance. And Lord, I pray that the stories that we begin to tell each other about the way in which you met us, Lord, would build us up. Jesus, thank you for being generous. Thank you for being kind. Thank you for being giving. Thank you for not being self-centered, but yet giving everything you had for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would move in our church in a powerful way. It's in your name we pray. Amen.